Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you before, my name is Chris Thompson. I'm the campus pastor of the Creekside campus here. This morning, we are going to be going through the uh, continuing in our series of the big ideas of the Bible, and we're going to be studying God's attributes. Now, think about it. We're talking about God here, all right? This is a big topic. We're talking about an infinite being. How could you ever compress that down into one message on a Sunday morning? It's just really not possible, honestly. I, I, you could give us a whole year of Sundays, and we probably wouldn't even scratch the surface. We're talking about God. But we're going to try to cover 10 different aspects, 10 different attributes this morning. And uh, I know that it's going to be an enjoyable time. We're going to have some fun with it, uh, but it's going to f- kind of fly through these 10. Uh, I would encourage you all to uh, get this book. I wish that we had the big picture of it on the screen, but what it is is it's The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. If you have not read this book, I cannot recommend it enough. In fact, um, go home and purchase it on Amazon even this afternoon. That's how strongly I recommend the book. It's, obviously, it's not very pricey. It's, it's probably going to be even less than 10 bucks. And with Amazon Prime, you'll have free shipping. Go for it. Get it, all right? You guys need to grab this book because it'll be a fantastic supplement to, in fact, not just a supplement, but it'll be a fantastic resource for further study about this incredible topic of the attributes of God. Tozier does a fantastic job of walking us through, in each chapter, profound and deep truths about God that are just sometimes just mind-boggling. But he does it in such a way that is, it's not so cerebral that it's just heady knowledge, but he does it in a way that really draws our hearts to worship. And that's what we desire. That's my heart for this morning. Now, one of the things that uh, I want to look at is one of Tozer's quotes from The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, What comes into your minds, our minds, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. To put it a, a fun way, the most important thing you could think about are the things that you think about when you think about God. Truly, what you think about God is foundational to everything. You think about what you think about God affects what you believe and what you believe about life and eternity and faith. It, it affects your, the way you live. It affects the way you worship. It affects everything. When Erica and I, my wife Erica and I, were first married, we were married in May of 98, and after honeymooning in 60-degree Canada, we came back to College Station in June, hot summer, get ready. You know, we were, we were um, newly married. I was working part-time here at the church, and I was also finishing up school. Both of us were finishing school. But I knew that I had to do something to provide for my new bride, right? So I joined a construction crew, and I began framing houses right here in College Station. In fact, the very first house it was, is in Wood Creek Division, and do you guys, anybody know who lives at 9205 Brookwater by chance? Because that was the house that we framed. And I got the experience of, uh, hopefully the house is doing great, by the way. I, I don't know. But uh, anyways, the house that we framed, 
I had the, the firsthand experience that summer of getting to learn all about construction. And we started from the foundation up, laying green plates and walls and studs and top plates and ceiling joists and rafters and learning about all these roofing angles and all this fantastic stuff. It was awesome. Now, it was hot. It was a hot summer. I remember at one point I was laying tar paper on the second story of a roof, and I threw up. It was so hot, and the foreman sent me home right away. He said, man, I don't want you passing out and falling off the roof. You're going home. And so, but uh, I, as, as hot as it was, I loved it. I loved getting to learn all about construction, love woodworking and all those things. But in that process, I got to experience firsthand the things that we all know metaphorically and philosophically that foundational things affect everything else, right? When we, we talk about building projects or any kind of structure, that what you do at the beginning, on the outset of it, is going to affect everything else as you begin to build this structure. And so it is with our understanding of God. These attributes that we look at today, these attributes that we understand from him, that he has revealed to us in his word, through his son, through his spirit, these are foundational things. And if we are off in any way in our understanding of God, it affects everything. All right, so we're going we're gonna to enter into and talk about this grand topic of God's attributes. Now, the thing about it is that there's a lot to cover. And like I said, I'm going to cover 10 of them. But what I want to do is I want to make it easy on us by classifying them in two different categories. God is great and God is good. All right. So when we talk about the greatness of God, we're talking about his majesty. We're talking about his splendor, his, just the things that make us in awe of him. And these attributes, the greatness of God, these are attributes that can be ascribed to God and God alone. These are only reserved for him and his glory. But we also want to talk about the goodness of God. The goodness of God are those attributes that we would call communicable, meaning we also can emulate, can model, can reflect these attributes that make God good. In fact, he calls us to these things. He calls us to model these things after him. All right. So those are the two things. First thing we want to look at is how God is great. God is great in that he is free. And I'm not talking about a marketplace idea or a cost. Of course, there is no cost that you could place on God. But the, the, the reality behind that word free is that God is absolutely independent in his being. He lacks for nothing, nor is he dependent on anyone or anything. If you think about that reality it's so foreign to our concept of reality because our experience is that we are very dependent creatures. Obviously, we are dependent on God for our very existence. We are dependent on God for our next breath. But we are also dependent on our circumstances, are dependent on our, our surroundings, other people. I think about how dependent I am on life as I know it. And I think about these apocalyptic movies and TV shows that have become all the rage in the last 10 years or so. And you have, in those, often you have the scenario where 90% of the world's population has all of a sudden been eliminated by some, 
you know, tragic means. And you've got this band of survivors that are trying to make it. And they've been all of a sudden thrust into the Stone Age where there's no electricity, no infrastructure, no, you know, civil government, no, nothing. And I'm not sure that I would make a, a week without HEB. You guys, this, I mean, it would be bad, right? Is, am I speaking truth right here? I mean, we are so dependent on the life that we have come to know. I mean, I, I wouldn't even know the first thing about what to do to create crops for myself. I, I'd starve to death. That'd be, that'd be the end of it. We're dependent on so many things, but yet God is not. He is absolutely, completely in himself independent of all things and all people. In fact, there's three sub-definitions that we could use in order to describe the freedom of God, the independence of God. First one is that he is self-existent. He does not owe his existence to anyone or anything. Second, he is self-sufficient in that he does not need anything from anyone. And then third, he is infinite. We've talked about this. He's unbound. He's unrestrained. We do not put, and, and he is, he had no, no one sets limits on God. In Acts, Paul says this about God. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath, and all things. So you think about the fact that God, through Paul's words here, he's describing the fact that he is, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Something to consider, and even to be mindful of, is how we prompt, encourage, and even try to inspire people to participate in God's work here on earth. We need to be careful that we don't ever falsely state that God needs you to do this. That God needs you to share the gospel with your friends and neighbors. While it's true that God calls us to share the gospel, God does not need us. On the flip side, we actually get the privilege and the blessing, the opportunity to participate in God's work here on earth to get to share the gospel. God invites us into his work that he's calling us to. He does not need us, yet he he allows us to participate in this eternal work that he is accomplishing through his people and through the church. So it's actually that we don't have to do it, we get to do it. We want to be mindful of the way that we encourage people in that regard. The next attribute is that God is all-powerful. The the theological term here is that he is omnipotent, meaning he's strong enough to do anything he wills. In Psalm 135, it says this, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and the seas and in all the deeps, God is all-powerful. He also is all-knowing. The theological term for that is omniscient. God fully knows and understands all things. It, it, it really is 
completely and utterly mind-boggling to think about the fact that God knows all details and all things past, present, and future. And one of the, one of the great things about God is that he doesn't simply look through the portals of time to see what choices you might make or even how world events might transpire, and he just has this passive knowledge about the world and the future, but he actually is very intimately involved in orchestrating all to come, to come about according to his will and his plan and his purposes. So his omniscience is more than just a passive knowledge, but it actually is very, and a very involved knowledge as he is the God, omnipotent, omniscient, and he is uh, at work in his creation. Psalm 139 says this, this is beautiful. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet, there was not one of them. And this, this is pretty profound revelation to us because it's not just that God knows heady details, vital stats, even things that happen and is even involved from an outworking, but he's actually omniscient in even our innermost thoughts. He deeply cares and is knowledgeable about even the things that we feel in our heart and the things that come to our minds before we even speak them verbally out loud. This is profound and such a sweet and blessed truth. So God is all-knowing. Additionally, God is everywhere present, meaning he's omnipresent. God is everywhere, always, completely present in his creation. Now, he's not one with his creation, whenever we talk about the fact that God is everywhere present, we need to be also careful that we don't lead people into thinking in a pantheistic way. Pantheism is that God is in the tree or God is the tree or, or a part of and non-distinct from the creation itself. We recognize that God is a part and separate and distinct from the creation, yet God is spirit and that allows him that permits him to be not just confined to a physical present body that's in one place, but simply, but truly, he is everywhere present. God says this through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? It's a powerful truth. When you think about it, in one regard, there's this aspect of conviction that whenever we sin, sometimes we want to escape from God's presence. You think about Adam and Eve when they were in the garden and they recognized that they were naked. They were ashamed after they had taken from the fruit that they were instructed not to, to eat from and they tried to hide, right? And they tried to cover themselves and hide from God's presence. So there is that aspect that whenever we feel that shame or that guilt when we have erred, when we have sinned, we 
Oftentimes we want to hide and we crawl in a hole and, and we want to escape from God's presence. But the flip side to that coin is the truth that God is always present with us and it can also give us great comfort. I think about Joseph in this regard. I think about, you, you may recall his story and that his brothers despised him. They, in fact, they wanted to kill him But instead, what they did was they sold him into slavery. He was then transported by the slave traders into faraway Egypt, where later he was then falsely accused and thrown into prison by Potiphar. You could imagine what Joseph may have felt in that situation. You could imagine how despairing it could have been for him that He is in this distant country, far from anyone who cares about him or loves him. In fact, his father, who actually cared about him, thought he was dead. So he could have resigned himself to say, I I am going to rot here in this prison. There is no one that is going to come to rescue me. My brothers wanted me dead. I have now been thrown in this prison in a faraway country. Woe is me. But the truth of the matter is that the scriptures tell us that God was with Joseph even in that prison, even in that very despairing place. God was with him. So there is no place that we can go that we would be ever isolated or abandoned from God's presence. And that gives us great comfort. That gives us great hope and security. Lastly, in this category of God is great, we know that God also is eternally unchanging. In fact, the, the theological term that we would use in this regard is immutable. He is eternal in his nature. He has always been, as we talked about, he's, he has always been and he always will be. The, he had no created point in time. He, was, he did not all of a sudden come into existence. He owes his existence to no one. So he's eternal, but additionally, as being eternally He's also unchanging. He has never changed. Think about the truth about this. God is perfect in his being as he is today. And so, as as such, he will never learn. He will never mature. He will never gain new insights because he has always been perfect in his knowledge, perfect in his person, And so there is no change in him. This next verse tells us, Malachi 3.6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And again, even in seeing this verse in in the situation for the sons of Jacob, but understanding this even for our lives, the fact that God does not change gives us great hope, gives us great security, gives us great comfort. We can trust God because he is trustworthy. He is, well, first of all, as we look at these attributes of God's greatness, we can trust God is, um, we can trust that he is not not changing. We can trust him because he's all-knowing. He has all knowledge in his own mind. He also is everywhere present, so nothing's going to surprise him because He wasn't there for that situation or that event when it transpired. He also is omnipotent, so you can place your trust in him because he has the power to 
be in your life, orchestrating events, guiding you, providing for you, even protecting you. We also can trust God because he's good. And we're going to look at those aspects of God's goodness now. God is holy. Read with me Isaiah chapter 6, verses 2 through 3. We look at this and we see that the seraphim, these wonderful, beautiful beings, these angelic creatures that actually had, the, the scripture tell us they had six wings. With two they flew, with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet because they were in the presence of God. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now I want to take a moment to just dwell on that statement that they are calling out one to another. The scriptures even tell us that they do that day and night, declaring the holiness of God. Now when Matt Morton, our teaching pastor, is up here, and he's sharing with us, and he's, he's speaking eloquent, and he's opening the scriptures for us, and he is telling us something that we need to really take home with us, he's going to stop and he's going to say, let me say that again. All right, he's going to repeat himself, right? Anytime an order, a communicator, an author, anytime they say something again, it's because they want to communicate something for us to take note. They're making an emphasis. They are trying to draw our minds to capture this truth, this, this reality. So when we talk about someone being holy, what does that actually mean? Because God is described as holy, holy, holy. This is profound. This is important that we need to really take note. The word holy actually is a, the English word comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, halig, which means well or whole, W-H-O-L-E. If you think about that in terms of, or I should say in contrast to us and what Matt shared with us last week as we talked about our state and our sin nature and sin itself, we recognize that we as human beings, as created beings, we are, because of the fall, because of the curse, we are sin-stained. We are sin-marred. We are broken. We are sick. We are not well, and we are not whole. God, in Stark contrast to our human condition is well. He is completely whole. He is completely and utterly set apart. That's what holy, a way that we can understand and define holiness. He is completely and utterly set apart in his perfection from us as created beings. So whenever the author, the scriptures, Say, holy, holy, holy. Let's talk about that for just a second. One person could be described as holy, that that person would be set apart. That being is set apart for God's purposes. If someone is described as holy, holy, then now we're really distinguishing them as really, truly remarkable in their holiness, in their otherness. But when someone such as God and I would submit to you that it's only God that can be stated that he is holy, holy, holy. Then we're talking about someone, a being, who is completely off the charts. Tozier, in his 
book, Knowledge of the Holy, says it like this. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. Now, now capture this, if you will. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. Consider the most holy person that's ever lived and just simply infinitely multiply their holiness. In fact, that doesn't even do it justice to describe God's holiness. You see, we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. God is absolutely and utterly holy and set apart. So when we talk about his holiness, one of the things that we, I, I want to be careful, because whenever I say it's unattainable, I'm talking about his brand of holiness. I'm not talking about the fact that we should just give up, throw up our arms. Well, if it's unattainable, if, if, if being holy is unattainable, then why bother? No, no, it's not a cop-out. Because truly, God calls us to be holy. He says it in the Old Testament, be holy as I am holy. Peter repeats it in the New Testament, be holy as I, the Lord, am holy. He's calling us to be holy. So it's still something that we are to pursue, that we are to emulate, that we are to reflect his holiness in our lives. And we can do that through the power of the Spirit working in our lives and in our hearts. So God calls us to this holiness. God's calling us to reflect these attributes in the goodness of God. The next thing that God is and he, he is in his goodness is that he is faithful. I so appreciate the faithfulness of God, the loyalty of God. Look at this verse. And Jeremiah writes in the, in the book of Lamentations, he says, The Lord's loyal kindness never ceases. His compassions never end. They are fresh every morning. Your faithfulness, O oh God, is abundant. I draw on that verse so often because I, I need him. I trust him. And I'm so grateful for his faithfulness. Truly, he calls us to be faithful people as well. He wants us to emulate this characteristic as well. God is faithful to his people. God is faithful to his word. God is also faithful to himself. So should we be. As people of God, we should be marked by this faithfulness to God. We should be marked by this faithfulness to each other, to the body of Christ. May we be loyal and faithful people. The next thing is that God is also true. He always says and does everything that is true and, again, faithful to his word and to his promises. Paul tells us in Titus 1-2, he says this. He says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. God cannot lie. In fact, James 1-17 talks about the fact that God is light. In him, in him there is no shiftiness about him. There's no variation. There's no darkness about him. There's no even tint or hint of, of uh, immorality. And so, and as such, he is going to be truthful. He is going to be straight with us. When we talk about these, um, these beautiful attributes, aspects of God's, uh, of, of God's character, we know that he's going to, he has revealed himself to us, 
And in this revelation, it's not going to change. It's not going to be something different in another day. I love the fact that whenever I'm standing here preaching to you, sharing with you from God's word about God's character, I know that I won't have to recall this sermon years down the road. Oh, new revelation. We got something different. God's kind of changed. He's morphed into something different. We got an updated, upgraded God. That's not the case. He's always going to be faithful to himself, faithful to his word. He's always given me true. The things that he has revealed about himself, we know they are true. Additionally, well, I should share with you this, uh, this verse. I'm sorry, gracious. God is gracious. God, if you think about grace, it's giving something someone good that they do not deserve. We've all received and been benefactors of God's grace. We have received the grace that he has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who has died on the cross for our sins, taking our place, this amazing, incredible grace that we have received is free to us, to all who receive. And so we have received grace to him. We also have received grace just in the beauty of our creation, the organization of his world, of what he has given to us, that we can count on the grace of each new day, the grace that he gives, it gives to us in our lives, in our hearts. He is filled with grace. In fact, in Exodus, it talks about God's graciousness. He says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. I love the fact that even in the Old Testament, even in Exodus, we see God being described as one of grace, of graciousness. And the reason why that strikes me is because so often there's an error in thinking, in our Christian way of thinking, that there's some sort of distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. Truly, have you ever heard of that or even thought that yourself, that that the God of the Old Testament has this law about him, and then the God of the New Testament, where Christ has come, there's this grace about him? Really, that, that's actually an error in our theology, if we were to, to think that. Because the truth of the matter is that God has always been a God of grace. And the only distinction between a believer in the Old Testament and a believer in the New is simply a matter of where, they land, where we land on the timeline of our world. Because the believers in the Old Testament, they trusted, they believed in God and in his grace, that he would send a Messiah. And for us, as those of, of us in the church age, we simply believe that he has sent his Messiah. So it's just a matter of verb tense, that God has always been a God of grace. And we know that about him even from ages of old. One of the things that we wouldn't be mindful of too is, is thinking about how can we reflect God's grace? Because as believers, we have been given this amazing grace, and grace is so foreign to the world's concept. It's so different than, I mean, you think about it. Look at every other world religion. There is not a hint of grace in any other religion. Christ and the, the, the message of the gospel, Christianity, is the only message of hope, because of God's grace. 
It's the only one that has grace infused into it. It's, this concept is so foreign to our world. And as such, so we as believers, when we emulate and we model God's grace, it stands out. It's significant. And so I want to call us to be gracious with the world around us. I want to call us to be gracious even with each other. So how often do we have fights and quarrels even within the church because we are not modeling God's grace? We want to be gracious people with each other. And I want to lastly say, and I'm preaching to myself, we need to be gracious with ourselves. We need to be filled with grace even for our own spirit, our own souls. I think about the fact that I beat myself up so often. I'll go home on a Sunday and I'll think about, oh, did I, did I say that just right? Did I, did I you know, talk to that person? I forgot to ask him about this. Or, and I'll just sit there and review my day. And I want to pray for myself in this regard as much as I pray for all of us that we would be gracious people even with ourselves so that God would, would minister to each other, to ourselves, to, to each of us, and use us to minister to the people out in this world, in our communities, to demonstrate his amazing grace. Lastly, God's loving. Look at this. You see, 1 John 4.16 tells us this about God, that he is, he doesn't just have love, he actually is love. God defines what love is. And you think about the amazing, the amazing aspect of the Trinity. Brian came and preached to us on the 5th of June and did an excellent work on the Trinity. You guys go podcast if you missed it that morning. It's fantastic. But if you think about the Trinity, there is an example in the Trinity, in the Godhead, of perfect love, perfect self-giving within the Godhead and the three persons of the Trinity. Marriage even actually is a gift to us. It's an institution designed by God for us to get just a sliver, just a glimpse of what it is like to live in that kind of unity and community and mutual self-giving, sacrificial love for one another. Now, we as humans, obviously, we can't accomplish it the way the Trinity can, but it is a beautiful picture of that kind of love within the Godhead. It's so good. I want you guys to read with me 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. This is a powerful verse. As we talk about God's love, it says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. You see, the phrase there is when it says, how great, that phrase actually is patapas, and the expression is used seven times in the New Testament. And it's in regard to something that is amazing. It's something that is really out of this world. The phrase is used when there's deep admiration, deep astonishment for what the person is experiencing. Here's an example of when it's been used additionally in the New Testament. And that is when the disciples witnessed Jesus calming the storm. And they were in the boat and they thought they were going to die. And then all of a sudden, God sa- Jesus says, peace, be still. 
And the disciples are just, their jaws are gaping open, and they're thinking, what in the world? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey his voice? We're talking outside of any paradigm we've ever experienced. In a silly way, let me, let me give an expression and an example of this. It doesn't come close, but no, no illustration does, right? My aunt, Deb, has worked for U.S. Air for probably around 40 years. And so she's gotten the kind of the cush deals where she gets to go to Europe like twice a month and, and, and does that leg. And um, whenever I was in late elementary, maybe junior high, something like that, uh, let's just say sixth grade, she went over to Holland and brought back some dark chocolates f- for me to enjoy. Let me just tell you, this country boy had never experienced anything like those chocolate pastilles. Is that how you say them? I don't know. Those little discs of dark chocolate. That was absolutely mind-blowing. I had never experienced anything like that before. So, Because I think part of it, it was probably that I was maybe you know, sheltered. I had no idea what was really out there. But also, America's got this weird love affair with milk chocolate. That's garbage. I mean, get that out of here. Dark chocolate, I'm telling you. And then all of a sudden, she brings this stuff in from this foreign country that my palate had never savored. And it was this rich confection like I had never experienced before out of this world, right? And now you can get those at World Market and Kroger and all kinds of stuff. But at that time, it was unbelievable, something outside of anything I had experienced. And so that expression would have held firm for me as well. And that, how great is this chocolate? But, you know, that I hate to even compare that. When we're talking about God's love here, I'm just trying to give you a little example. But the idea is, is that is something beyond anything that the disciples would have experienced, that we experience, it's beyond our paradigm, beyond anything this, this world truly has to offer. In fact, if you go on through the verse, it says how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. The translation there is actually the word give, but give just doesn't do it justice. The NIV, I feel like the translation with the NIV actually nailed it. The, the translators there, they use the word lavished. You see, God's amazing Out of this world love, he has lavished upon us. He has poured out in abundance upon us. What kind of love is this? I don't even understand it. I don't even comprehend it because what it is, is it's it's a love that pursues me when I don't deserve it. You see, our experience is that, and our our reality is, is that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, and we had our fists raised to him and said, I don't need you, I don't want you, Christ died for us in our place. What kind of love would that be that God would adopt us as children when we were enemies to him? That is the profound, incredible love that God is richly bestowing, pouring on, lavishing on us. May we Soak that in. May we truly marinate in that and enjoy that and allow it to sink into our hearts. I feel like, so I turned 40 this month and I became a believer at five years old. And just recently, I feel like I'm starting to experience God's love in a new and a fresh way. And I'm just 
all of a sudden, some of the things are falling into place. 35 years of being a believer, and I still realize that I'm just barely scratching the surface, but I'm enjoying and I'm relishing in God's great love for me. Enjoy the love that God has for us that he richly pours out for us. That is his rich love. One of the things that Tozer does so well as he, as he guides us through understanding this in a profound way, read with me this incredible quote from Knowledge of the Holy as Tozer talks about God's incredible love. He says this, From God's other known attributes, we may learn much about his love. We can know, for instance, that, God, that because God is self-existent, his love has no beginning. Because he is eternal, because he is eternal, let me find my place, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea, before which we kneel in joyful silence, and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats confused and abashed. May we worship as we look at and we dwell upon God's attributes, his greatness and his goodness. Now let me just encourage us this week as we talk about these things. Consider how foundational all of his attributes are, all of the things that he has revealed to us. And again, we've looked at 10 of them rather quickly, I, I fear. But the truth of, of the matter is, is that you can enjoy and bask in each one of these and more as you study them, as you spend time with him, as you go through your day and appreciate each one of them. I want to encourage you as you are spending time with God this week, Ask yourself the question, what would my life look like if this particular aspect or attribute of God were not true? Consider, like, how would my life change if God were not holy? How would my life look different if God were not love? And as you begin to peel away some of those attributes and say, what would would our experience be as human beings be like if God were not immutable? or if he were not omnipresent, we will begin to take a deeper, deeper gratitude for these attributes that we enjoy every single day of our lives. So I'm hoping, and my prayer is for each one of us, that these attributes, and as we study them, as we enjoy them, as we really soak them in to our being, that we would worship at a deeper level, but that also our lives would be transformed because when we get to know God and his greatness, we'd also enjoy his goodness and seek how we might emulate, how we might reflect his goodness to the world. 1 Timothy 1.17, my all-time favorite verse. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time this morning as we've had the opportunity to enjoy, study, bask in truly, and hear from your word about your attributes. 
And while this study and this sermon was far too short from being comprehensive, we recognize, Lord, that you are infinite. You are great. And there is no way that we could even begin to do justice to all that you are. But Lord, lead us in wisdom. Lead us in knowledge of you that our hearts might worship you and that our lives might be transformed by you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.